One of the great issues of our time in at least our part of the world and in particular in certainly in the community at Spirit Rock and I actually think here is the question of diversity. So if you look around the room we're not doing so well actually in some ways. And in other ways we're doing very well. So I spent some time thinking about diversity this week at Spirit Rock and I wanted to bring some of that back to you and talk about it a bit and also bring you a few other things. We may end up talking amongst ourselves a bit as well. We'll see. See where it goes. This is one of those kind of sort of unplanned evenings. So So what we know here at Vipassana Santa Cruz is that you know, we actually have a reasonably decent balance of gender diversity. And I know we have a fairly significant population of people who are gay and lesbian who sit with us. And we actually do reasonably well with um, age diversity, partly because the Dharma punks meet here on Sunday evening, which is great. And the even better thing is that there's some going back and forth between the two groups. So all of us old gray-haired folks get to hang out and wish we had gotten tattoos when we were younger and think about, is it too late? (laughs) At least I think about, is it too late? (laughs) My daughters assure me that it's not. So stay tuned. (laughs) And of course, what we don't have here in Santa Cruz so much Um, partly because it's not a particularly diverse community, is ethnic and cultural diversity. Some, but very little in this community. And what I so appreciated about our work with Angelus Arian, who is an anthropologist and, as I said, a spiritual teacher as well, teaches a lot at the California Institute for Integral Studies up in San Francisco, or has in the past, um, was how much she stressed that this is it's not a problem, it's a resource that we have, you know, that there is, we live in a very diverse world with many, many different cultures. And, um, and we know, of course, that it's a problem if we move too far into the realm of being sort of a monoculture. Any of you who are plant people know that monocultures don't do very well. It's always um, a wonderful thing to walk through the forest and, or any place that's in its natural state and see the incredible diversity that's there. So we looked a lot at, um, at the question of how do we come back really more into that natural state of diversity. And we didn't come up with any solutions. I wish I could tell you, okay, here's how we're going to do it. Um, and I'm mostly telling you this part of it just to, to, name, to name it and to 
bring it to our attention for our own community. It's not actually an issue that we've addressed a lot here at the Pasana Santa Cruz. We haven't really talked about is there, are there things that we could do that would bring more diversity into our midst. And I'm open to it. So if any of you are excited about the notion or want to work on it, um, let me know because um, I think it would be a really good way for our work to go. She said some really wonderful things that I wanted to share with you. And um, she said um, that, that she talked about what she calls the three medicines for diversity work. And I actually think they're probably the three medicines for living well together in community. She talked about genuine acknowledgement and genuine apology and genuine joy and laughter. That those are actually the three things that really do bring people together. And I was quite taken with the list. Some of them seem obvious and um, and yet also very interesting when we think about them. So, you know, that place of really acknowledging each other. And when I think of that, I think of my most wonderful teacher, the Dalai Lama. And one of the things I've always loved about the Dalai Lama when I've had the great blessing of being in his presence is how he looks at people. And this is a man who looks at a lot of people. You know, he travels all over the world. He sits with great crowds. He walks along, you know, and there's people gathered as close as the various sorts of guys in suits will let them be to see him. And when he can, he stops. And he always looks right at me, like high in the air, you know, and really makes solid eye contact with whoever it is he's looking at. He doesn't necessarily say anything to you. Maybe he does. Sometimes he does when he can. But he really looks. And I've watched him do this over and over and over again. And just in that look, there is the acknowledgement that here is another human being in this thing we call a body, living this life subject to sickness, old age, and death. Someone who suffers just like he does, who's trying to wake up just like he is. There is such deep acknowledgement just in that look. And I watch people. It's almost like watering a droopy plant, you know, and then the plant kind of perks up. If you watch one, you know, sometimes after you water it, and then 20 minutes later you go and look, it came back, you know. And I've watched people just kind of, they straighten up a little and they sparkle a little and a little life comes back in. Now, it's true. It's the Dalai Lama. It's not me that's making that eye contact. And maybe you wouldn't perk up as much if I make the eye contact. But nonetheless, it is something that we can really do for each other. And it's, it's an interesting practice. It's one that I really recommend is to work. You know, how e- it's so easy. You go to the supermarket. Now, some people don't want you to make eye contact, right? I try it sometimes, the checker, you know. I try to look them in the eye, and they're looking the other way like this while they're ringing up my groceries, which is probably not such a good thing to do. But nonetheless... 
So, but we can work at, can we, when we meet each other, really make that acknowledgement, oh, there you are, you know, you too. Because we need each other, right? But one of the jewels of our practice is the Sangha. And that, that connection, that acknowledgement, really creates that community, even just for a moment. And of course, if you do it here, or places where you see people over and over again, then the connection leads often to words, and then to some further conversation and deeper connection. I loved it that the second was one was on the list. It's taken me most of my, just about 67 years now, to figure out that apologizing is a really good thing to do. And it's not something to be embarrassed about or to wish I didn't have to do it. Because when we apologize, when we apologize for harming somebody, whether we intended to or not, you know, if I harmed you in any way, knowing or unknowing, Please forgive me. That's a line from the forgiveness practice, actually. So that place where we ask for forgiveness, where we apologize for something we've done, it's particularly important when we have made a mistake. And, you know, I grew up in a world where it wasn't okay to make mistakes. You know, we were all trying really hard to be perfect and to get hundreds on our exams and to, you know, all of that. And mistakes were, in my family anyway, not a good idea. So it wasn't a very easy thing for me to learn that it was okay to make mistakes. And when I began to understand that, and I'm really just beginning, I'm really such a newbie at this practice, that I could say, I blew it. I am so sorry. You know, the connection that begins to be made is profound. People like it when you apologize. It's very interesting. It's quite wonderful. And often then there's some healing that can happen when we can do that. And I think in the world of diversity work, in the world where as cultures we've made some significant mistakes, beginning to apologize for ourselves and for the people who have gone before us is a very useful thing to begin to do, to say, I am so sorry that this has happened. How can I begin to change it? What can I do, to use the words of 12-step work, what can I do to make amends for what it is that I've done? For years, I've thought that's one of the wisest of the steps in the 12 steps. It's that place where you are told to go out and make amends for the things that you have done. And of course, before you go out and make the amends, you have to make the list. You have to admit that you did a number of things that you wish you hadn't. Not an easy place for us, I think. And um, it's a it's a place that's it's interesting. It's very deeply rooted in Buddhist monastic culture. There's a, a time every couple of weeks where, as a community, people sit down and people own their mistakes and people apologize and and there's that kind of clearing that happens when those events take place. And then genuine joy and laughter is the third of the three medicines. And so that, I think, does not come as news to any of you, that place where where we can laugh together. She had a lovely quote 
from Victor Borga that says, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. So, so that place where, where something happens, and, and I certainly know, you know, sometimes when I teach, that doesn't happen very much here anymore, but often at a retreat, you know, I'll go to the retreat, and the first few days of the retreat, we don't talk to, even teachers don't even talk to the students, right? You're not, the students are sitting, we're not doing interviews yet, and everybody gets really quiet, and they're all looking down, and and they people get kind of sober, and they sit out there where you are, and they look at me in this kind of sober way, and I think, oh dear, they hate me. <laughs> teachers do think this. And what am I going to do? And then there comes a point where something funny happens in the hall or somebody says something funny and then we all laugh and, and all of a sudden it begins to shift and, and the heart opens not only on the part of the students but also on the part of the teachers and, and it really is this wonderful connection. So I offer you those. It's, it's, it's I think a, something to think about for our work here, that how can we use these in our community in diversity work and in all of the aspects of our lives as a community of uh, acknowledgement and apology and laughter. And then the, the last thing I wanted to share, and actually it was what I most wanted to share because it's something that I've carried around with me for a long time, I, I, these these came out as questions from uh, they were mailed out on a little card that the Zen Hospice folks sent out some years ago. So these are people who are working consistently with people who are dying, right? And um, these are questions that that if you came uh, in many cultures to a shaman to ask for some healing, your your soul isn't doing so well. So I imagine if I asked, you know, everybody tonight, you know, how's your soul doing? Probably some of us would say, well, eh, eh, great, you know. So here's what you would be asked. We're having a little multicultural evening this evening. When did you stop dancing? When did you stop singing? When in your life did you stop being enchanted by stories? When in your life did you stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence? So those are wonderful questions. Wonderful questions. When did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you stop being enchanted by stories? When did you stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence? And I have to say, in the Buddhist world, we're not so good at the singing and dancing part. And it's actually an interesting question for us in the Western Buddhist world, because most of us come, if you come from any religious tradition at all, most of us come from traditions that sing. And that is one of the comments I hear over and over and over again. 
people come and they say, you know, I'd love to sit. This is really my spiritual community now. I think the Buddhist teachings are really where it's at. But I miss singing. Can't we sing? And, you know, we could chant, but the chants aren't particularly interesting musically. And that would help, though, I think, if we did a little more chanting here. So maybe that's something to think about. But if any of you are musically inclined, it would be really an interesting project to see if we could create some actual Buddhist music in our more Western mode. Because it's going, I think it's going to have to happen as Buddhism comes to the West. I think at some point we have to figure out a way to sing about the Dharma, however that might sound. And there's a few. There's a little bit that's been done here and there. And some of you may know it, and maybe somebody will offer to teach us something tonight. I don't know. But um, it's an it's an interesting question. And certainly when I think about I was thinking about this as, <coughs> as I came here tonight about singing, and I can remember... You know, driving in the car when I was a child, and my dad loved to sing, and so he would lead off, and we would all join in. And certainly, we sang in school, and I sang a lot at scout camp, and really loved it—all those wonderful camp songs that maybe some of you did. And then somehow I went off to college, and that was the end. You know, kind of sing along a little bit with various musical stars, but not really singing a lot, and. Um, unless you were lucky enough to belong to a choir or a chorus or something of that sort. So it's a question, I think, for us in our communities here. And dancing, same thing, you know. We do move. We do move. Marcy teaches Qigong here at 5.30 on Thursday nights, and she teaches at our retreats, and we often have yoga at our retreats, really working with movement and, and embodied mindfulness and it's a really, really important part of our practice. So we're certainly moving in that direction and maybe dancing won't ever be part of Buddhist practice but it certainly seems like it's part of the human life and something that we all need to do even if you're doing it in the privacy of your kitchen you know, boogieing around a little bit while you're doing the dishes or something, that's, that's actually a, a useful thing, I think, for us as human beings to do that, to move to the rhythm of the music. Fortunately, we have plenty of stories in the Buddhist world, and there are lots of stories about the Buddha and about the many lives of the Buddha before he came to be the Buddha and all of the many teachings, which um, I think are um, a wonderful offering and a way that that um, and many people find that, that that's how they connect to Buddhist practice in a, in a deep way is when they hear the stories and people like I know I've heard some of those stories you know the day that the, after the Buddha was awakened and he was walking down the road and he met the person who said, you know, what are you? You know, are you a wizard? Are you a magician? Are you a god? I mean, we've all heard that story so many times. And I love it when someone starts to tell it again, you know, the same story. Tell me again one more time about the Four Noble Truths. Tell me again, please, the story about the hindrances in practice. And so we have a, a tradition that's deeply rooted in um, the oral way of passing things along. 
and um, and so I think that's very much built into to us as a Buddhist culture. And then the comfort of the sweet territory of silence is something that we do rather extraordinarily well, I think, in the Vipassana world. And we all come here week after week, some of you day after day, most of us regularly on our cushion, taking that time to anchor ourselves in the world of silence and stillness so that we are nourished by it and comforted by it. And certainly I know, for me anyway, that um, there are times when I sit down, particularly when we sit in the evening like here, and I sit down and I can feel my whole body and mind vibrating with my day. And then gradually, gradually, gradually it begins to kind of still down and, and settle and um, relax. So I think that's probably enough. And um, I've got a few minutes. So I think what I'd like to do is suggest that you just turn and find a couple of people near you. And I'm going to read the four questions again. And then I'd like you to just talk about it for a few minutes. Maybe each one of you pick one of them and talk about where you stop. So find your people, and then I'll read the questions. And then we'll talk together as a group. You're only going to do this for three or four minutes, so please don't leave. Stay and talk to your neighbors. So once you're settled... Yeah, all right. Just two or three other people is all you need. Or one other person, doesn't matter. Make sure, make sure you know each other's names. Okay, now let's listen up. Stop finding comfort in the sweet territory of silence. Okay, go. I'll ring the bell to stop you in a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.